0: you're listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The 2023 New York Encounter just wrapped up, and we'd like to thank the over 400 volunteers who came to New York to help make it possible. We also want to thank everyone who made a financial contribution to the New York Encounter this year. And if you haven't, it's not too late. You can always head to newyorkencounter.org slash donate and contribute today.
1: Well, I'm supposed to introduce this Two friends, new friends. David Brooks, uh, if I may say so, a friend of the encounter. We've had him multiple times. And a new friend, if I may say so, because people who come to to the encounter usually become friends by osmosis. (laughs) And uh, Dr. Collins. Uh, Just in a few words, I'll give you a summary of what they've been doing and what they do. Uh, for the long version, which will keep you occupied for a couple of days, you can go to the <laughs> New York Encounter website and you'll find everything about them. Right. David Brooks became an op-ed columnist for the New York Times in 2003. is currently a commentator on the PBS NewsHour, NPR's All Things Considered and NBC's Meet the Press is the author of various books, his latest one being The Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life. Mr. Brooks also teaches at Yale University and is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Dr. Collins is a senior investigator in the intramural program of the National Human Genome Research Institute, previously served as the 16th director of the NIH, the National Institute of Health, appointed by President Barack Obama and confirmed by the Senate in 2009. In 2017, President Donald Trump asked Dr. Collins to continue to serve as as NIH director. And then President Joe Biden did the same in 2021. And much more. And then Monday comes, if I may say it, Monday comes Dr. Collins will become uh, the acting scientific advisor to the president. So, so, given the characters we have, I get out of the way and I leave the floor to them.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So a a few years ago, I was at Princeton, and I was walking at a conference down the pathway with another guy I met at Princeton. And so I said, what department are you in? And he said, I'm in astrophysics. And I said, well, what work do you do? And he said, I'm the guy who discovered the age of the universe. (laughs) And I said, I'm probably never going to meet another guy who did that. (laughs) And so Francis is the person who led the massive team that decoded the human genome. And we're not going to be another guy who did that. <laughs> 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 so it's an honor to be. <laughs> um, now, as amazing as that achievement is, we're going to hear on a slightly darker subject, um, which is reality, which is the, a constant theme at New York Encounter. <laughs> uh, my first time I was here, w- the theme of the conference was New York, reality will not let you down. Um, and reality, personally, is constantly letting me down. But yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the, um, but so we're, we're here to talk about truth and, and reality. And a world in which truth is suddenly a matter of contention, or at least con- a lot of people's connection to reality is tenuous. And so I guess from your experience, basically, over the last couple of years as one of the leading public health officials uh, responding to covid What's it been like to to practice in a world Mm. where our connection to truth is sometimes tenuous?
3: I didn't really dream that it would be this hard. When that virus first appeared in Wuhan, China, in the last days of December 2019, and when we found out what the sequence of that viral genome was a few days later and started in the most aggressive, organized, scientific effort that had ever been mounted uh, to build a vaccine. I hoped and prayed that this would work, that we would come up with something as quickly as possible that could save lives. And in fact, the way in which science came together, industry, academia, government, the regulators, this thing called Operation Warp Speed, was truly an amazing enterprise. No vaccine had ever been developed and approved for human use in less than about five years. In this instance, it was 11 months. And I remember the evening where the results of the blinded phase three trial were going to be revealed uh, to me and to Tony Fauci, my colleague. And I held my breath, because you don't know until you see what happens. 30,000 people had taken part in each of these trials, and they are heroes. They were willing to say, I'll sign up and I'll get a shot, and I won't know whether it's the vaccine or whether it's just salt water, and I'm gonna give all the answers to what happens to me over the coming months, and we're gonna see what happens. And we thought, if that vaccine maybe had efficacy of 60%, maybe 65%, that would be fantastic. And if hopefully it didn't have any bad side effects, that would be fantastic. And that evening, no serious side effects in those 30,000 people. And the efficacy was 95%. And I had prayed about that all year. And I will tell you, I cried that night about as hard as I've cried in a long time. And it was tears of gratitude, tears of joy. That was... November of 2020. But something's happened here. Yes, we have saved millions of lives with that vaccine, and hallelujah for that. But we've also lost a lot of lives from people who, for one reason or another, got information to make them wary, fearful, of taking advantage of this. I'll tell you just one story, because sometimes the stories are more effective than the statistics. Josh Tidmore, 37-year-old, Alabama, father of three, kind of a jokester. He's the guy that showed up at family parties wearing a dinosaur suit. They were near the beach, and he was always photobombing the couples on their honeymoon. And his grandparents had started an evangelical church that he and his wife, Christine, were part of. And as the vaccine began to be put forward as something you might want, they started hearing things about, maybe this isn't safe. Josh looked at some of that information. He saw some article on social media about this guy, Tony Fauci, that maybe he wasn't to be trusted. And Josh decided, I don't want this. And Christine decided she didn't want this. And then in July of 2021, they both got a cough. And Christina got... Well, pretty quickly, but Josh got worse and worse. And then he was in the hospital. And then he was in the ICU. On August 11th of last year, Josh Tidmore died. A father of three, age 37, no prior medical conditions, and he was gone. And that death did not need to happen. And that is one of probably 150,000 deaths in this country alone that did not need to happen from people who decided the vaccine was not for them, even when it was readily available by last summer. That is the deepest heartbreak that you can imagine when you see how our culture wars, which have set people into these tribal views, many of which are attached in very unfortunate ways uh, to public health messages, is costing lives. Our culture wars are killing people. And that is, effectively, for the thing we're talking about here this evening, the, mo- the starkest possible example about how our loss of the anchor to truth is placing our whole society at risk. And we could talk about other ways, too. We could talk about climate change and the denial of that. Uh, we could certainly talk about where we're going as far as a democracy, in terms of how people are viewing information about whether elections are safe or not. If we don't figure out how to get ourselves back to the point where objective facts actually carry more weight than loudly expressed but false opinions, I fear for the future of our our nation, our world. And I didn't see this coming. You know, I'm this guy who thinks rationality will always win out. I guess I was a bit of a Descartian, and I should not (laughs) have been because Descartes was wrong. (laughs) You and I have talked about this. Maybe I should have read a little bit more of Hume. Uh, but I didn't expect it would get to this level where people could actually look at the evidence of those more than 100,000 people who have died unvaccinated. Almost everybody who's died since last summer have been unvaccinated and still say, no, it's not for me. The uh, ability of our cognitive bias to find its way into life saving decisions is so much stronger than I thought it was.
2: Yeah. I, we've had. Been on a series of calls over the last couple of years, Zoom calls. Uh, uh, when Francis is facing a complicated genetic issue, he'll generally <laughs> call me. Uh, <laughs> and,
3: and he never lets me down. Never it's lets like, you down. Oh, yeah, why didn't yeah. I think of that, David? Thank, yeah. thank you.
2: <laughs> What's the, what is a helix? Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but I would say I remember the first time you told our little group the efficacy of the vaccine. And I remember, you know, your first, you, and, but then over the ensuing months, and especially in the middle of 2021, I, I saw your mood mm. really drop, I would say, if, if I'm reading you correctly. Yeah. And what, I guess I would ask you, what was it like to go through that trajectory? And second, to get back to the Cartesian point, what you learned, <laughs> you know? There was a, after the financial crisis, this may be a bad analogy, Alan Greenspan, said, I always thought people were rational and self-interested, but I guess maybe not. <laughs>
3: <laughs> maybe not. Yeah. Well, I learned that, and, and I was pretty naive, I think, until this. I thought up until you know, May of last year that people would eventually come around. Yeah, there's a lot of people saying, yeah, I'm not sure it was developed too fast. I'm going to watch and see what happens. But then it just didn't get any better, <laughs> starting back last summer. Those who had pretty much said, I'm not interested, they stayed not interested, even as the death count continued to rise, and it's still rising, and most of those folks are still really dug in. So the ability to sift through information based on whatever it is, your, your web of beliefs, as the philosopher Quine uh, has written about it, is so strong that if you have incoming information, that threatens one of the nodes in your web of belief, you're going to send that off in another direction and you're not going to allow it to actually get purchase on your thinking. And I didn't realize how strong that was. And maybe it wasn't that strong in some other situations, at least as far as medicine until now, but medicine has gotten wrapped up in everything else that has divided us, turned us into warring tribes And that means that whatever information you're getting about your health is automatically going to be seen through that lens of who is your tribe and what do the rest of them think about it. And I'm sorry, politicians have made this a whole lot worse by entering the space of public health in a direction that has largely, I think, harmed the truth. And I didn't see that coming either.
2: Yeah, you would think 150 unnecessary thousand deaths would be pretty strong evidence that you should get the shot. But now, what, let's talk a, in a little more detail about what got us here. You mentioned the culture war and there's sort of a, just a tribal grouping. Uh, there are probably charlatans out there who are feeding bad information. There was a section of the media industrial complex that was endorsing bad information. How, how, what do you think caused this kind of remarkable situation?
3: Well, I should say a little bit, but then I'll ask you because I think you've thought more deeply about what's happened to the fabric of our society uh, over the course of the past many years. It's convenient for some people to say, well, it was just uh, the p- former president and the way in which truth seemed to be constantly a little bit under attack uh, by the way in which every issue was approached. But that's much too easy. I think uh, he took advantage of what was already there, which was an undercurrent of suspicion of elites, a suspicion of experts, and a sense that, you know, they're out to get you. But it goes back, Uh, people would say, politically, it goes back a long way, maybe all the way back to Goldwater, but certainly up to Pat Buchanan and what came after that, this sense uh, that politically you need to be against what is actually happening uh, in the academic hallways, and the government is not necessarily on your side. And that, gradually, over time, I think it's built up and exactly how it got to this level, um, a lot of it's economics. A lot of it is the way in which uh, other anchors uh, to our society have gotten frayed, anchors like uh, commun- belonging to your community, like your church. And we can all look at the statistics of how uh, the flight from the churches uh, has left a lot of people without the kind of anchor that they might have had uh, 10 or 15 years ago. But what would you say? Well, how do we get here? It wasn't just Donald Trump.
2: Yeah, I, I don't think it's an intellectual problem. Uh, I think it's an emotional uh, problem. The, you know, the, we've talked that the brain and the body are part of one system, and the brain can't think rationally when the body doesn't feel safe. Yeah. And when the body feels unsafe, it, 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 that, that's what's in control. And over the past 40 years, Um, there's been a group of people of whom I'm the epitome of highly educated people who live on the coasts, who go to fancy colleges, who marry other people, who raise their kids, invest huge amounts of resources so they can also go to fancy colleges. And then they move to New York and San Francisco and Washington and they marry each other. And so we've had it, we've created an inherited Brahmin meritocratic class. And that class has economically drifted away from the rest of the country. They have excessive influence, I should say we, on -hmm. the media, on the universities, on the culture. (coughs) And a lot of people look at this class and say, those people have too much power. And they don't respect me. Screw them. Mm -hmm. And the first people that attitude led to was going after the media, distrust in the media. And unfortunately, distrust in scientific Expertise got swept up in that. That would be my. my well, I have a lot of different stories to tell, but that would be one of my stories. That a general sense of resentment and distrust at elites who are betraying us. And if you, if someone tells you facts that are wrong, but stories that are right, they will believe the story. Exactly. And there's a lot of truth to that story, unfortunately, and and that speaks poorly of people in my class. Mm. Uh, that we. You know, we had a, a Brahmin wasp elite in the 50s, but they actually knew the country. <laughs> they had served in the military. And so to me, it was that social chasm that unfortunately people in your profession got tainted with. And, and so I, I think it's really about social resentment. And the problem is, once you tip over to social resentment, then you start, you, start, uh, you start disobeying the laws of your craft, and even my craft. And so now it's particularly hard to get, we want to get people in those communities to work at our newspapers and magazines and TV stations. But if they're not going to follow the rules of our craft, it's hard to do that. And so we're stuck in this situation. Mm. But that, that would be my essential, that it's an emotional problem, not a, and a social emotional problem, not a cognitive problem.
0: Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The New York Encounter is a three-day cultural event that takes place every President's Day weekend in Manhattan. Every year we bring together speakers, put on exhibits, and host musical shows offering opportunities for education, dialogue, and friendship. Following St. Paul's suggestion to test everything and retain what is good, the Encounter aims to discover, affirm, and offer to everyone truly human expressions of the desire for truth, beauty, and justice. To learn more about the New York Encounter, visit newyorkencounter.org. Now, you've been through these two years
2: in particular, but a whole career really. And a lot of that time, you've been communicating with the public about complicated health issues, particularly COVID. And I imagine as you look back on the last two years, there are some things you were proud of there are some things maybe you and Tony Fauci and others wish they could do differently, mm. and maybe there are some things you learned. Well, how, do you, <laughs> how do you assess all that?
3: Yeah, there's a lot. Uh, and all of us, I think, had good intentions, but we didn't always have, I think, the efficacy of the message transmission that we had hoped for. I think I would have told more stories and maybe had less uh, lectures about statistics. Which is hard for a scientist, because we're always suspicious (laughs) about anecdotes. Uh, If somebody's trying to convince me something about how cell biology works, I don't want to hear your anecdote about this cool thing you saw at 2 a.m. this morning where this one cell did this one thing. (laughs) I want to hear about the whole range of observations you made and what kind of statistical test you did to say that this was unexpected. But that's not very compelling to people who are trying to understand something about a public health emergency. So I think we should have done a more effective job of telling stories about personal matters that people could relate to, instead of making it sound sort of uh, a little off-putting, a little academic. I think we would have been better served right from the beginning to say, right now, we are studying this virus, but it's early days, and we really don't know a lot of things about this. Let's admit, we don't know a whole bunch of answers that we wish we did. So we're gonna give you our best hope for what the right answer is for today, but we're potentially gonna be wrong. In fact, we will definitely be wrong. So this is gonna change. Don't be surprised if three months from now or three weeks from now, we say, oh, well, what we said then, that was the best we could do, but now we have new information. We're gonna have to change, whether it's mask guidance or social distancing or what you're gonna do about getting a booster or not getting a booster, all those things are going to need to change. Just like you would want your stockbroker to give you a current estimate about buying a stock on today, not on what you had a month ago. But I don't think we did a very good job of that. And so when things did change as far as the recommendations from CDC and Tony or I would be up on the television describing that, the immediate reaction was, wait a minute, that's not what they said before. These people don't know what they're talking about we didn't do a good job of explaining the science is going to evolve.
2: Yeah, I often tell people to go back to the speeches Franklin Roosevelt gave during World War II, the radio addresses to update people on the war. (laughs) And he said, okay, lay out your map. We're here, we're moving there. And then metaphor, genius at metaphors, like when he tried to sell Lend-Lease when we sold loan troops or material to England. He said, okay, your neighbor's house is on fire, you have a hose, you're gonna give him your hose. And it was simple and a summary of what Lennon Ace was all about. But, huh. but,
3: and there was no internet to say, FDR doesn't know what he's <laughs> yeah, talking about. Yeah,
2: no. <laughs>
3: Keep your hose There's to that, yourself.
2: <laughs> <right>? <laughs> There's no such thing as hoses. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I wonder, We say, we don't know. Now, the one thing I've learned from politicians, or at least what I could say is the conventional wisdom about politicians, is there are two things you must never say. I don't know, and I was wrong. (laughs) And the the argument is that if you say I was wrong, then your friends feel betrayed, and your enemies sense weakness, and they pounce on you. Mm -hmm. And so there was a time when George W. Bush was at a town hall in his re-election effort, and the question came from somebody. What's a mistake you made?" And he did the politician answer, you know, my st- mistake was I love this country too much, or, you know, <laughs> one of these things. Uh, but he went up to her right afterwards, said, I just can't do that. And there, it may be an ugly reality that we live in a, such a partisan world that to say, we don't know, people say, well, pay- your job is to know. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's complicated to... to Endure that.
3: Yeah, and science gets caught up in that sometimes, too. And I don't think scientists are perfect either in admitting their ignorance about things. That's not an easy thing for a lot of scientists to Mm -hmm. say. Science, you know, somebody uh, said this the other day, I can't remember who it was. Science is not itself the truth. Science is a path to the truth. And sometimes you go down the path and you make a wrong turn and you have to figure out, oh, I missed that one. The beauty of science is it is self-correcting. It will eventually get the answer if it's something that really matters, but sometimes it's wrong in the first pass, and it can be even wrong for a while before somebody figures out what the right answer is. But science can't do what it does without believing there is something as clear as objective truth. It's our job to discover it. I don't know any scientist who would really be a postmodernist and say, well, your experiment is your opinion. <laughs> I've got my experiment over here, and that's my opinion. No, it doesn't work that way. Um, and we do believe, therefore, that it is a noble activity to really uncover how the universe is put together.
2: Yeah. Now, when you were in these jobs with Tony, I, you were not only a sole individual, you had a gigantic organization you mm-hmm. were leading. And that organization is also tied to a network of scientists around the world. Now, as you were being a public spokesman, What are they all saying to you? Is that an extra pressure point? Are there multiple pressure points? Are they telling you opposite
3: things? Um, Some of that, I mean, we tried really hard uh, within the US administration to be sure that all the people who were trying to give out public health information were at least talking to each other and knew what the facts were. So Dr. Walensky, the head of the CDC, Tony Fauci, myself, Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General, uh, we would meet every week and have a deep dive into what's new now. And if you're gonna be on the Sunday show, what are you gonna say? (laughs) Because let's be sure we're all saying something that sounds almost the same with perhaps some personal twists, but you don't want to confuse people utterly. From the uh, outside world, we were also really connected, trying to be sure those messages, there's still a Sunday call every week with South Africa uh, to find out what's happening, because their pandemic has always been just a little bit ahead of ours, and we've learned a lot from them, likewise with Israel, likewise with the UK. Science, by its nature, has been international all the way along. Pasteur made that point. Science belongs to no one country, uh, said Louis Pasteur. And he's right, because what we learn is often uh, applicable everywhere. So I think that part played out pretty well, with a few exceptions. Sometimes WHO seemed to have a slightly different view of the world (laughs) than the rest of us, but they were well-intentioned.
2: Yeah. What about we had on our TV shows, we all had different doctors to to give their own opinion. There was a guy who seemed very impressed with me, Dr. Zha, I think was his name. Um, what, how, how would that cloud of witnesses interact with you? Was that a problem or were they generally they were helpful?
3: They were generally helpful, um, with a few exceptions that were kind of rogues. Uh, we did several times during the course of the year try to have a session with all of the sort of docs who were in the media sphere. And nobody else just, okay, let's really have a back and forth. Uh, What are the questions they think we're not answering effectively? What is it that they think that we have not properly uh, explained that maybe they could help with? So it was mostly helpful, collegial friendly.
2: Now, let's wander a a bit into the faith world. You're a professing Christian as well as being a leading scientist, and you were sent out to evangelical radio stations and probably Catholic radio stations. Yes. Yes. And what was 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 that encouraging discouraging Um.
3: oh david i gotta say (laughs) this uh let me just say a word about my own trajectory because it's a little unusual Um, i was an atheist as a teenager as a young graduate student in physical chemistry Um, i went to medical school uh, trying to apply science in a more human way and discovered I was unprepared for sitting at the bedside of people that were dying and trying to understand what that meant and what I would do if I was in that bed. And decided I'd better learn about why people believe, because my atheism was not really based on any real examination of the evidence. It was based upon what I wanted the answer to be, because then I didn't have to be responsible to anybody. Uh, And then I engaged in this two-year process, which was pretty intense, trying to shore up my atheism. And it didn't work, <laughs> it totally didn't work, and I gradually found myself seeing atheism as the least rational of the choices, because the assertion of a universal negative, as Chesterton said, is a very daring dogma indeed. <laughs> and gradually began to recognize that agnosticism wasn't going to do it either, it was sort of like stopping halfway without really making a decision. And the, the evidence from science, which I never really thought about, was actually pretty compelling in terms of there being a creator, the Big Bang, and what, what happened? How did the universe come into being like that? There had to be some means of that, and you couldn't get there with another kind of natural event, so you had to have a supernatural event to explain it. I think that's pretty compelling. And then look at the way the universe is put together. This is astounding. It follows mathematical laws. Why should that be? Gosh, there's an amazing mathematician or a physicist at work here. And then when you look at those laws, they have constants in them. You all know about this, the the way in which those constants, like the gravitational constant or the speed of light or the strong and weak nuclear forces, you can't determine from theory what the value of those constants are. You can write down the equation, but you gotta do the experiment and find out exactly what they are. And you take any one of those and you change its value by as little as one part in a billion, and the universe doesn't work anymore. You don't have the ability for anything interesting to happen. Some particles would fly apart for a long time or maybe come back together in a big crunch, but there would never be anything complex possible, except having those very precise settings like somebody or someone set the dials. So that forces you into Either a multiverse hypothesis, which you'll never be able to confirm experimentally, so that takes a pretty big leap of faith, or a creator, an amazing creator with an intellect and, and, a, and a knowledge of physics that none of us will ever figure out, because I guess uh, God created that. So that got me to a deist God, but I didn't get to a theist God, and still I started thinking about morality, and where is that? Why, why do we as creatures who according to the scientific approach would say are driven solely by evolutionary arguments as far as our behavior, why do we actually have this drive at times to commit things you might call radical altruism, maybe even sacrificing our life for somebody we don't know because it's the right thing to do? That is a scandal to evolution. And that made me realize there's a signpost there, and it looks like it's a signpost towards a God who's not just made the universe kind of cool and gone off to do something else, but who actually cares about me. And then I had to figure out what to do with that. And I got increasingly uneasy, because there is a God who cares about me and therefore knows me and knows all of my flaws and all of the ways that I'm not very lovable. How am I gonna fix that? Well, you all know the answer. The answer is Jesus. Jesus came to be one of our species, to know all about that, and to be able to understand uh, my shortcomings, and to be able, with grace, to allow me to be forgiven by his sacrifice on the cross. It all made total sense. And all the things I've just said to you, if somebody said that to me when I was 15, I would have said that's total gibberish. But... (laughs) It suddenly made perfect sense. So I became a Christian at age 27. People said, your brain's going to explode now because you're a scientist, you're a physician, you want to study DNA, and you're going to be a Christian, oh no, that's never going to work. And you know what? I never have seen a conflict at all. Not at all. Now if you want to, try to read Genesis 1 and 2 as if it was written as a science textbook, you're going to have some issues there about seven days of creation. but. I mean, read John Walton, I think the most impressive Old Testament theologian of our age. The people whom, for whom that was written would certainly never have thought of it as a science textbook with a literal 24-hour day. So there's not an issue there. So I'm, I've enjoyed enormously this ability to look at questions that can be scientific or they can be spiritual, and I don't have to put a wall between those. As long as I'm careful about which kind of question I'm asking, this all fits together in a lovely harmony. And so I'm joyful as a Christian, and I'm an evangelical Christian, and now I look around me, to come back to your question, sorry about the long prelude there, and see what has happened to us. I would have thought that evangelical Christians, Christians in general, Catholics, would be on the forefront at a time like this, where truth is under attack, saying, oh no, That's not the God that we serve. We know what Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 32. You will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free? Are we being set free now by all of the distortions, all the ways in which these kinds of lies, conspiracies have shifted into the foreground, and the truth is kind of left to stage? And it's not actually the case that Christians are doing better than non-Christians, evangelical Christians, the group I'm part of, are the most resistant of any demographic group, the white evangelical Christians, to vaccines. It's just astounding because they've, I think, been caught up in this really weaponized version of politics and pushed into these tribal groupings where they end up in a space where what's really driving people's decision-making and their cognitive bias has nothing to do with the foundations of faith, and everything to do with all these other messages that they've been deluged with, and my heart goes out to these people. These are good, God-loving people, and they've been talked into something that is not just unfortunate, it's threatening their lives.
2: Yeah.
0: You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded, and as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want the Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate, and consider making a monthly donation to sustain the Encounter in its work. Thank you for your support.
2: Let's stick to the question of faith and then get back to the question of how America is screwed. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, um, On the question of faith, I I was at a dinner with an astrophysicist, and he was dismissing the existence of God, and he said, the the reality is that there's an infinity of universes and somewhere in one of those universes, there's a dinner party just like this with people just like this having the same conversation we're having now. And I was like, that's your parsimonious alternative to the existence <laughs> of God? <laughs> yes,
3: and <laughs> he heard of Occam and his razor. I don't think that yeah. quite works. Yeah. <laughs> um, but
2: as you were describing your faith journey, you presented it as a series of um, deductions. Mm. And and I think we've all had that. I mean, I'm not a scientist, but I interview a lot of scientists who study the brain. And when you learn about the brain, it, the superabundance of it, the structure of it, the, the function of it is, is mind-boggling. I mean, it makes you think. Astounding. And, and then three pounds of meat in your head create consciousness. Like, how does that <laughs> happen? And I tell my neuroscientist friends, until you can figure that one out, don't be dismissive of faith. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, and I'll speak personally as someone who came to faith in middle age. That was enough to open the door. There was a different kind of knowledge that sealed the deal. Yeah. And I would say, for me, the, the phrase I use, I, I borrow from Chris Wyman, uh, to be overawed by reality. Yes. And it's, not, it's a sensation, a sentiment, but not a deduction. Would you say that's also a piece?
3: Absolutely. And I probably made it sound all very precise and rational, but it was not. For me, the rationality had to be there to get me to the point of the possibility. I knew I wouldn't find a proof. If somebody has found one, please tell me, but I don't think that's what God's plan was. But it had to get me to the point of plausibility. And then revelation sort of had to take over where reason just couldn't get you across that final leap. And the revelation was really much more a sense of a calling, of a spiritual closeness in a way that you couldn't really quite describe. And, and that sense, and C.S. Lewis had a big influence me on all this, the, the, the sense of these moments of joy that you couldn't identify, but which seemed to be a moment of glimpsing uh, the kind of spiritual relationship that you longed for, and then saying, I want that, and I'm willing to take a chance. Uh, on this not being a proof, not Mm -hmm. being fully rationally defensible, but it is a revelation that I am now taking on board.
2: Yeah, and I ask that because it suggests there are different epistemologies to understand not only faith, but the world. And I personally do not think the epistemology of that sense of transcendence is opposite the epistemology of reason, but is interspersed in, in the way emotions and reasons are interspersed. Like we used to have this sense... To go back to our, our goat here, Descartes, that <laughs> reason is separate from emotion, and if your passions are high, then your reason is low. But there's a guy named Antonio Damasio at USC who studied people who can't s- experience emotion. They have brain lesions. And they're not super smart Mr. Spocks. So they can't make decisions because they can't value anything. Our emotions are how we assign value to things. And so our emotions are generally to be trusted. And that kind of emotional knowledge and the task of forming your emotions strikes me as one of the elemental tasks of society which we do very badly and so to me those two Mm. epistemologies which i think are both in your head Mm. uh, do you experience them as opposites or monday wednesday and friday here tuesday and thursday there
3: um, no, I think very much of them is harmonious and integrated. Uh, I'm, I'm not a fan of Stephen Jay Gould's idea about the non-overlapping magisteria or the non-overlapping epistemologies. I think they have to be integrated within your personal experience or you're going to find it very frustrating to go through the day. Uh, philosophers write about this, the, the epistemology that's a priori, where you sort of know it on rational bounds versus a posteriori where it's something you've experienced uh, which may or may not be entirely rational but it is meaningful it is something that has affected who you are and they're both in there and philosophers will debate about exactly which one is more reliable or more meaningful to people but you can't say they're not both important
2: yeah and i would say that one of the things we're learning it's we used to think we saw the world which was like this passive process of opening our eyes and letting things come in, and then we thought about the world, and the thinking was the really complicated thing. <laughs> but I think now we're learning the seeing is the complicated thing. That, you know, our seeing is not passively taking stuff in, it's predicting what we think we'll see, top-down, and then checking bottom-up to see if it's accurate, and, and constructing a world. And so, like the, a friend of mine, Lisa Feldman Barrett, an earth scientist at Northeastern, And she writes about rainbows. And so rainbows have no color, they're just light waves. And rainbows have no band, they're just a continuum. But we see bands, and we see color, and we, Westerners, see seven bands. But (laughs) Russia has two words for blue, light blue and dark blue, so they see eight bands. (laughs) And so there's a zillion findings of this sort. But what—and getting back to our subject, it reminds you that there is an objective truth out there, but our matter, matter of perception is extremely subjective in how we can get there. Your brain is basically a Polaroid camera tr- in the black skull trying to figure out the world, a really complicated thing. And so when I read all this, these research findings, I'm not surprised that people see different realities. And I come away thinking, we have to work really hard as a culture to form people so they can doubt some of their perceptions, Mm -hmm. so they can doubt some of their subjective reactions, so they can understand how their trauma or fear is interfering with the world they think they see. And because we've basically treated people as too innocent, we assume people are basically good and we don't need to form them, that therefore you get all sorts of epistemological problems Because, and I would say moral problems that we have not, we as a society do not do formation as well as we used to.
3: And I know you're a big fan and maybe the person who primarily promotes the idea of epistemic modesty, and maybe this is a good example of just that. But David, how do you avoid by focusing so heavily on the fact that our perceptions really do have an influence on what we see as reality? Some will take that all the way to the uh, extreme of saying, well, that means there is no reality. Right. You would resist that, I hope. I would resist that.
2: Uh, <laughs> I, they wouldn't let me in this encounter. if <laughs> I <did>. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I think there are hard constructionists and soft constructionists. <laughs> and so hard constructionists think everything's a social construct. Mm-hmm. And I'm a soft constructionist. I believe that if terrorists kidnapped me on the way back to the hotel, I would be terrified. And in some sense, that's a subjective experience. But I think being kidnapped by terrorists is objectively terrifying. <laughs> yes. And so, But I do think we only have subjective exp- access to the world out there. As I said, your brain is in a dark vault, and it has very limited ways to make sense of what's going on. So we're talking sentences up here. If you heard the individual words we're saying without the context, you would not be able to understand 50% of those words. But because we're really good at detecting patterns, you can hear the words and understand each word. But there's just the amount of active construction going on in the brain is astounding that we're not aware of. And so to be aware of that is to be epistemologically humble. And but, but humility is not a trait we have done a great job of as a society.
3: Oh, I, I don't know. I'm very proud of my humility. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wrote
2: a book on humility called The <laughs> The Well, I'm way more humble than you are, so uh, <laughs> I wrote a book in 2015 on humility uh-huh. and then 2016 come along and I said, well, that worked. <laughs> uh, but, so I, I, so it, these are skills and practices. And let, let's get back to your profession. Um, I'm in the world of journalism. It's rare that pundits say, you know, I said this, but the evidence t- proved me wrong. It happens. And I would say, actually, on Substack, I'm impressed by the number of real independent thinkers there are carving their own path on Substack. Um, the the for that. shareholders of Substack are in the back. <laughs> um, but my impression of uh, science is that it's, it, it's a basically a pretty honest game that if the data come out the way Mr. Big Scientist does not believe, he says, oh, I've got to rethink this. Is that... Am I being too naive about how big science works?
3: No, you're not naive at all. I think the greatest harm that one sees done to science are people who will intentionally distort their data. Those are the things that cause people to really say, how could you? How could you be part of this profession? I'll tell you a, a sad personal story 25 years ago. An incredibly gifted uh, MD, PhD student in my lab uh, turned out to be fabricating data over the course of several months. I didn't catch it. The postdoc who was working with him didn't catch it. Finally, it turned up in, in a uh, submitted paper there was something wrong with one of the figures that one of the reviewers caught, and then it all fell apart. And this was just an incredibly talented young man who knew what the answer was gonna be and didn't wanna actually do that experiment one more time, so he just faked it. It was the most devastating, dark thing that's ever happened to me as a scientist to imagine that somebody could actually intentionally take the most fundamental principle of science, which is you're searching for the truth, and throw it all out. And I think those things do occasionally happen, and they're incredibly distressing uh, when they do. And actually, I think, For a young scientist, or even a middle, uh, or or emeritus scientist, one of your greatest hopes is that you're gonna discover something that is gonna completely destroy conventional wisdom. That's like, wow, if I could do that, that's gonna make my name, it's gonna make the whole field undergo a rethinking, that's what you wanna do. You wanna be a disruptor, but a disruptor with the truth, not with a lie.
2: So, One of the puzzles for me in in your field is about intellectual property. So I read this book, some people have read, uh, uh, by Walter Isaacson um, about the creation of CRISPR and Jennifer Dubna and the Broad Institute. And it seemed very hard to me to define who did what. (laughs) And and yet intellectual lawsuits are trying to settle who did what to figure out where the money should go.
3: It is almost impossible in almost every situation, because science doesn't just sort of pop up out of nowhere. Every discovery that you talk about is built upon the shoulders of decades of research. Take take the mRNA vaccines, which I think has been one of the most amazing developments uh, of the last many decades for infectious disease and will probably give many prizes going forward Uh, to those who did so. But if you look at that story, that goes back at least 25 years, mostly work done by people who are somewhat obscure, trying to figure out whether you could put RNA into a cell and get the cell to treat it as something it wanted to make a protein from, and all the reasons why it didn't work. (laughs) And finally, Cataline Carrico figuring out what to do to modify that RNA so it would work. But there will be, I'm sure, uh, lots of intellectual property. I know there is on mRNA vaccines, and it doesn't capture all of that. And in a certain way, that's not really fair, but it's whoever basically gets to the point where they can say, I invented this, and convince the patent office, then something happens. Yeah, our intellectual property system is really probably about the worst there was, except all the others. Uh, It does. (laughs) invented by Benjamin Franklin. I mean, the idea was to try to be sure that if somebody made a discovery that would benefit the public, that there was this limited monopoly, so there would be investment in bringing this forward to a product and not just an idea. And it's mostly worked, but it certainly, nobody would look at it and say it fully recognizes the contributions of all the people who made a really important role. Yeah. How
2: should we think about big pharma in this? The not the most popular industry on Earth, but when I think of the last <laughs> couple of years, Moderna and Pfizer in particular seem kind of impressive to me. Like, are, are they, how, do, how do we think about their profit motive, the quality of their science, how they interact? I assume they're interacting with all the other scientists in the world. Oh,
3: absolutely. Uh, this is one of the things I really worked hardest on for my 12 years as NIH director, is making sure that if there was a really important scientific effort that we could develop a partnership with industry, in a pre-competitive way, not something that was going to get into intellectual property. Let's get everybody around the same table. Let's work on it together. Let's get pharma to help pay for it and not just have the taxpayers cover the cost, even if it's sort of a basic science effort. And we've been doing that, in diabetes, and Alzheimer's, and rheumatoid arthritis, and Parkinson's, and a whole host of things, and it's worked great. It has advanced things much more rapidly. The people I work with in pharma are the chief scientific officers. They're amazingly talented, gifted, Morally driven people. I don't talk to the business people. So maybe that's (laughs) part of the reason I'm gonna say to the positives. I mean, look at Pfizer and what they've done with vaccines. Look at their antiviral, this Paxlovid, which really works. If you are unlucky enough now to get COVID-19 and you really need a therapeutic, um, this is gonna be a pretty amazing alternative to everything else that wasn't working so well.
2: This new technology that's in these two vaccines, how much is that gonna change the treatment of other diseases going forward
3: a lot look at cancer people have been working on cancer vaccines for 10 or 20 years it hasn't gone very far very fast partly because the cycle time for making the vaccine was so long that by the time you had the vaccine for that patient they already had very far advanced disease mRNA you can do this so quickly so the idea of an individual cancer vaccine is now very much on the table that's a big advance and certainly in infectious diseases some of those Infectious organisms that we've had a really hard time with, HIV, malaria, tuberculosis, everybody is now throwing mRNA at those because you could do this in a much more rapid way and try out a thousand different things instead of having one trial every five years.
0: You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want the encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain the encounter in its work. Thank you for your support.
2: Now Let's uh, get back a little to uh, you as a person of faith in a scientific world. I mentioned I teach at Yale because I only teach the schools I couldn't have gotten into. Uh, and... <laughs> And I would say, I've been doing it 20 years, and I would say 20 years ago, it was very uncool to be religious. Uh, It was like you had acne. Um, uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, And then I would say about 10, 15 years ago, it sort of became a sign of spiritual depth. Mm. And there was some cool factor even, and I had a class, my class, I draw a disproportionately number of... religious kids, so it was probably 30 or 40% in the seminar, and there was a young woman who had never encountered faith, and we were reading the book of Exodus, and she said, can you believe anybody takes this seriously? People used to really believe in this, and now we find it so repugnant. Uh, And there were three guys with kippahs on their heads, so like, she could have looked the room. (laughs) uh, (laughs) And then two of my students who were evangelical were A, the smartest two students in the room, and to the best-looking students in the <laughs> room. Uh, and they said, no, we believe that stuff. And they took her aside and had coffee with her. And she didn't become a believer or anything, but she learned a lot from them. Hmm. And so my perception was that it was becoming you know, acceptable. I would say in the past six years, <sighs> that's all turned around. And as your experience, I assume, you know, when you were first named to NIH, I, I know there were some people who said, oh, we got this crazy Christian, like, can't do that. <laughs> yes. um, but how, how, what's your, the trajectory of your experience? As oh,
3: a- Yeah, that's a really interesting question. You know, I started right before I became NIH director this foundation called BioLogos, basically trying to provide a place uh, for serious Christians who are also seriously interested in science to talk with each other in a civil way. It's been a wonderful organizational structure. You can go and see biologos.org right now and join the millions of people who are there engaged in really deeply thoughtful conversations about this. And over the course of the past 13 years, um, I had to step away to be NIH director, so I just watched and cheered. Their enthusiastic support steadily grew up, up, and up. And that was pretty much going well until the beginning of COVID, then again, It became all about that, and again, the crisis of who do you believe, uh, with believers oftentimes uh, going down the path of being skeptical. Uh, BioLogos did a lot to try to counter that, Uh, ran podcasts with people like uh, Tom Wright, the remarkable New Testament theologian, or or Tim Keller, uh, the pastor of Redeemer uh, here in New York maybe trying to convince people that you can actually be a serious Christian and trust science on the vaccines, but it was a tough slog. And I think because, particularly in the last four or five years, evangelicals have been so seen by people in a place like Yale as denying uh, the the facts of science uh, that it's just harder for students to see why they would want to self-identify that way. That's heartbreaking. It's one more casualty of the culture war we're in the middle of, and it's a terrible one. And you can see, I mean, look at the reports from uh, uh, the the surveys that are done by Pew or or by Barna. You can see this impact on what's happening with young people in the church.
2: Yeah, but I assume at NIH, people got used to you. Like, (laughs) they, 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 yeah.
3: Yeah, they did. Like, oh, here he goes again. He's gonna talk (laughs) about Christ, oh boy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
2: The big crucifix on the top of the NIH building is fantastic. <laughs> <for that>. uh, <laughs> uh. So we've got uh, nine minutes left, and <laughs> so now we're going to have to fake it and pretend we know how to move forward. <laughs> uh, so yeah. we, we have this problem of reality, problem of truth. What do we do?
3: Yeah, what do we do? <laughs> <laughs> I guess according to your column, we're in a dark century, so we're probably <laughs> in a place where we ought to try to get some light into this. Um, I've thought a lot about this, and this was said earlier, I think this morning in the session uh, with uh, uh, political leaders, which was, by the way, terrific, that anybody tries to tell you there's just one thing that you're gonna do and it's all gonna be better, I don't believe it. This is such a complicated multifactorial, multifactorial situation. I mean, at every level, there are things that governments should be doing, there are things that nonprofits should be doing, that community groups should be doing, that churches should be doing. Um, But I think mostly it's going to come down to the individual, because that's really how these things happened, and that's how they may ultimately get turned around. And that's going to mean a lot of people deciding not to go along uh, with the current crisis and and not to buy into the divisive approaches to everything. I think, tell me if you think this is right, I think there are a lot of people uh, sitting in the pews at Mass on Sunday um, or in some evangelical church just feeling like something's wrong here. They've maybe been drawn into this mindset of we're under attack and we have to be fearful and those liberals are going to try to do us in. And we have to defend ourselves by all of the messages that are coming at us. But they're just thinking to themselves, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel like what we were called to do uh, following the Sermon on the Mount. If any of them are, are reading the Old Testament, I just ran into this a couple of weeks ago. Proverbs, I'm going to do a little uh, scripture here. Proverbs chapter 6. There are six things the Lord hates. Seven. Seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Does that sound like anything you've <laughs> noticed around the <your> <laughs> These are the things the Lord hates. And I think our church is there must be people feeling like, wow, we're, we're on the wrong path here. If we could figure out a way to turn that into more of a revival of what Christianity is really all about, and I know there are people working on that in significant ways, maybe we could lift ourselves out of this. But I think it's going to have to be ground up. I don't know that the top down is working very well.
2: What do you think? Yeah, I would say two things. <laughs> Victor Frankl went to Auschwitz wrote a book, I hope everybody's read, Man's Search for Meaning. Yes. And one of the interesting things, I'm often asked, I write these books about morality, and I, people say, isn't that a luxury to be able to think about spiritual growth and morality? And I say, well, we've been to really poor countries in the world, and they really care. And Viktor Frankl said, when we were in the camps, and most people were dying, most of our topics of conversation went away. And our interest in sex went away. We talked about two things, food, <laughs> with the food we were not eating, and two, purpose and meaning. That the religious instinct was heightened. So far from being a luxury in human life, it's a foundation of human life. And so his book is called *Man Search for Meaning. People need meaning, and they need a purpose in life, and the gospels give a purpose to grow in grace, to become more Christ-like. And that is a morality. It is a morality and a moral system that has not been taught and it has been replaced by a different moral system, which is I'm going to be the righteous defender of my people against our enemies and that the line between good and evil doesn't run down every heart. It runs between groups. And a lot of people I meet who are both on the right and left, they feel a wonderful sense of righteousness. It just doesn't happen to be a morality that involves any internal conflict or internal struggle. Mm. And that's a very seductive morality. Mm. And so, to me, to replace that moral system with a moral system which is about internal and uh, elevated is a a big moral problem to create an essential, what I come to think of as a desert of humanization. (laughs) That we live in a world where all the forces of humanization, whether it's faith, the liberal arts, the theater, those are all in decline, and the forces of dehumanization are on the front, mostly politics. Mm. The second thing I would say, so I'm really talking about <coughs> the moral, changing the moral ecology of the country, which has happened. It happens all the time. It happens every 30 or 60 years, whatever. The second, and again, this comes from reporting around the country, is I just think we have an epidemic of blindness. So many people tell me they don't feel seen. And so it's Republicans and Democrats who look at each other with blind incomprehension. It's rural people who feel that urban people don't see them. It's black people who think that their daily experience is not understood by whites. It's lonely kids who think no one knows them. Mm. And so the one thing the Bible really emphasizes, the Bible is filled with dramas of recognition. Are you able to see? The disciples do not see the risen Christ. In the parable of the good Samaritan, a lot of people see the injured guy by the side of the road, but they don't really see him. Only the Samaritan sees him. And that failure of seeing is not a visual failure, or cognitive failure, it's a failure of the heart. Yes. And so the project I've been working on is to what exactly is the skill of making people feel seen, heard, and understood? And I'm working on a book, and I'm in the middle of it, so I have no idea. But. But one trait, the one trait that's most consistent with making, with what they call theory of mind, the ability to see, it's verbal intelligence. It's the ability to ask the right questions and listen carefully to the answers. Mm. And we're generally, I can say to all of you in the room, how good are you at this skill of knowing what's going on in other people's heads? I don't know all of you, but you are not as good as you think you are. (laughs) And so the people who research this find if we're talking and I assume I know what's in your head, On average, I'm right 22% of the time. (laughs) If I'm really good, I'm all right 50% of the time. A lot of people are right 0% of the time. Uh, And they think they're right 100% of the time. And so to me, it's this granular social and emotional skill of really getting to know another person. And you can only, to be beheld, you have to be willing to behold, you have to know how others see you. And so we we have failed to teach these basic social skills, Mm. especially in a world of plurality, pluralism and difference. Wow. That's my riff. That's Um. (laughs) impressive.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And I guess because we have now a minute left, just a bit of a word of hope that I think may give us in the long term a better outcome of Ashlof Havel says truth and love must prevail because lies and hatred can't. But it, of course he was in prison a long time before that prediction came true. I think even though we all have these contentious beliefs, many of which are now influenced by false information and yet we hold them close because they're part of this web of belief that we've built for ourselves, that web rests upon these pillars that we all really still have in common, pillars of family and faith and freedom, pillars of love and of truth and of goodness and of beauty. And I don't know that those pillars are that much at threat of being chopped down. It's just what we put on top of them. And so when you bring people together and they really have a chance to talk to each other, even if they think they're from different tribes, uh, Braver Angels does this all the time. At the end of the conversation, what do they say? They say, I guess we're not that different after all. (laughs) We are not that different after all. We have been, I think, seduced uh, by messages, many of which are self-serving by voices that are making a buck off of it or getting political capital out of it. And sooner or later, we have to figure out that that's not the way to build on those pillars that we all agree to. I'm just enough of an optimist to think that that can happen and that people of faith are going to lead that effort. Okay. Well, one (laughs) final
2: thing to say. Um, (laughs) I I got a very good email from a veterinarian in Oregon. I was complaining how hard it was to teach morality in a classroom. (laughs) And he says, never forget what a wise man says is the least of that which he gives. What gets communicated is the small gestures of his actions. And he said, the message is the person. And I've, I've come to believe that's largely true. The message is the person. And so when Pope Francis became Pope, um, a lot of people, secular or not, just admire a person who lives like Jesus. And the message is the person. They didn't have to believe in mm-hmm. the faith. They, they knew the message was the person. And having hmm. been accompanying you a little on the last several years and working so closely to decode the genome as we did. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, it's just been a privilege uh, to watch you go through this and sometimes endure a lot. And you've stayed a nice guy through it all, which is amazing. Uh, So Francis Collins. Uh, Wow, David Brooks.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. We hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please consider posting a review on whatever platform you listen on. Those reviews really help the podcast reach more listeners. If you share the podcast on social media, please tag the New York Encounter. On Twitter, we're at NY Encounter.